Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have blessed this church with your word and that you have given us instructions as to how to worship you and how to live becomingly and appropriately as children who have been saved by you. We thank you, Father, for the grace that you've given us, and I pray that your Holy Spirit may be upon your servant Joe as he preaches. May your word be heard despite his imperfections, and may your Holy Spirit impress what you want us to know in our hearts, though our hearts ourselves are often resistant to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Let me pray for us before we enter into our scripture reading and sermon for today. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to come before you, Lord, and to preach your word. We pray that you would be present with us, Lord, and we pray that you would also be glorified through your servant. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Verse 16, now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord, I'm sorry about that, uh, what therefore you worship in, as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to life all man, mankind all life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some people mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, friends, this morning we come to a fascinating section of Scripture that gives us some insight into the mind of the Apostle Paul when it comes to the way he evangelizes people. And what it provides for us is a biblical model of the way for all of us to reach unbelievers with the gospel message as well. And hopefully you'll notice that the approach that Paul takes when sharing the gospel is actually quite the opposite of the kind of evangelism that takes place amongst evangelicals today. You see, modern evangelists use a kind of market-driven approach to reach unbelievers with the message of the gospel. Unfortunately, however, this market-driven method stands in direct contradiction to the teaching of Scripture. In a book titled Ashamed of the Gospel, John MacArthur describes this approach like this. He says, The market approach to Christianity is the idea that the local church must organize, worship, and work in such a way that it appeals to the surrounding community. Under this model, preachers are pressured to make the local church appealing to the masses. They cannot condemn sin because that might offend people and drive them away. They cannot practice church discipline because that would make them appear to be unloving and unkind in the eyes of the community. Instead, the demand is that they market the church so that it can appeal to today's mind and win more souls to Christ. Now, I just want to say that this certainly doesn't mean that there are absolutely no principles for marketing that might be helpful for us as preachers and teachers when we proclaim the gospel. But it does mean that there's a big difference, friends, between marketing the gospel of Christ and faithfully proclaiming it, between selling the gospel to unbelievers and faithfully declaring it as we evangelize people. And this kind of distortion of evangelism is exactly why the concept of an evangelist today is still met with skepticism and suspicion amongst a lot of people today. But you see, Paul never marketed Jesus because Paul preached the gospel faithfully in each and every situation. And that's exactly what we're called to do today as believers as well. Now, with that being said, I want to begin by observing the method that Paul used when he evangelized in this city of Athens, right? And from this, I think we all today can learn three very important lessons about how we should engage unbelievers when we seek to share the gospel with them, right? When we seek to win them for Christ. Three very important lessons about evangelism. So when we evangelize unbelievers today, we must do three things. First, we must have compassion for sinners. Second, we must be familiar with their culture and third, we must boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ. But first, we must have compassion 
for sinners. Look at verse 16. Now when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, it's important to point out that Athens was a city that had multiple temples and shrines, uh, over 200 of them to be exact. And the marketplace was literally full of idols as there were various altars that were erected on every corner to all of these Greek gods. In fact, someone once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a person. And so as Paul walked through the city of Athens, uh, not only would he have encountered all of these idols personally, but he also would have seen a multitude of, of Athenians who traveled there daily to the marketplace in large numbers to worship these idols as well. And they generally worshiped these gods by sacrificing animals to them, while at the same time uh, engaging in drunkenness and wild, immoral parties as well. You see, although there was much to be admired in the city of Athens, like its philosophy, its history, its culture, and all these vast and beautiful architectural structures, um, what really agitated Paul the most was the spiritual idolatry that he encountered in it. You see, Paul realized that the people of Athens were completely bound and immersed in idolatry and in their superstitious beliefs. And therefore, they had absolutely no hope of ever attaining salvation apart from the proclamation of the gospel. And seeing all this grieved Paul. It saddened him. It stirred up his soul and caused his heart to melt for the sin of the people, so that he had compassion on them, right? And verse 16 describes his spirit as being provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You see, the language of this passage expresses Paul's feelings so intensely that it suggests to us that he was highly agitated so that he couldn't stand to see them given over to this type of folly. Couldn't stand it any longer. So out of love, Paul evangelized them. So Paul's witness to them was driven by a broken and compassionate heart for unbelievers that moved him to action. You see, Paul viewed the city of Athens with a, with a different lens than other people because he saw the city from a Christian perspective. Paul had a Christian worldview where for him, the Bible was the absolute foundation for all of life everything he believed, everything he did, and everything he said as well. And so when Paul was confronted with all the idolatry and all the immorality in Athens, he was filled with a zeal for God and a brokenhearted compassion for people who were engaged in this type of thing. And this is part of what it means for us today to be Christian, right? Because being a Christian means that our, our hearts have been broken and they've been changed so that we're, we're really concerned about the spiritual well-being of others. Through our Christian worldview, we have a genuine care and concern for people's salvation. And this worldview shapes all of our beliefs about life and ultimate reality. In other words, as Christians, we see the world through a different set of lenses than everybody else, right? Sure, we might participate in many of the same things that other people do, 
but we see them from a completely different perspective. For example, we see the arts and the sciences differently. We listen to music differently. We value music differently. We think about sports and entertainment differently. We think about business and ethics differently. We view gender and race differently. We view marriage and family differently. We view life, death, and eternity differently. The reason, friends, that we see the world so differently is primarily because we see it through the lens of God's special revelation to us. We, th- we see it through the lens of the Bible. Because the Bible is our foundation for all of life. And sadly, like Paul, one of the things that we continue to see with our Christian worldview is that the world that we live in is full of idols. And that behind all of the moral, intellectual, and relational problems that exist in our world today, there is a profound problem of idolatry. People continue to worship God in ignorance. And idolatry, friends, is more than just the worship of shrines and images, right? Because at its root, idolatry is an issue of the heart, right? And idolatry occurs whenever a person puts their trust or hopes in a false god, a god that substitutes for the true and the living God. And friends, an idol can be uh, whatever you want it to be. It can be a person's approval, success, authority, fame, popularity, sex, pleasure, food, education, power, entertainment, or control, and so on. You see, our world today is full of idols because the world is full of sinners. And so like Paul, we should lovingly engage people by listening to them, hearing them, and dialoguing with them that we might show a real and genuine compassion for their salvation. Tim Keller says that some people are good at the ministry of truth, but terrible at the ministry of tears. Friends, when we evangelize others as Christians, we must show compassion. That brings us to our second point, which is when we evangelize unbelievers, we should be familiar with their culture, as familiar as possible. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So here we see that Upon his arrival in Athens, Paul evangelized two groups of people. He evangelized Jews who were in the synagogues, and he evangelized Gentile philosophers in the marketplace. And surprisingly, the method that he used to evangelize both these groups was noticeably different. You see, Paul was very aware of the religious demographic of his audience. And so he tailored his gospel presentation to suit each of their particular needs. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in verse 2 of Acts 17, we saw that when Paul evangelized in the Jewish synagogue, 
the method that he used with them was slightly different than the one he uses with Gentiles. You see, when Paul evangelized Jews, he reasoned with them from the scriptures so that he could prove to them directly from God's word why it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because Paul understood when you evangelize a Jew, you reason from the Bible that he or she already believes and accepts as the word of God. Why? Because the Jews were a deeply religious people who had a long history of the Bible. They were religious and generally accepted the Bible as special revelation from God. You didn't have to convince them of that. And so Paul approached them from the standpoint of their biblical worldview, right? Because since they were already familiar with Christianity, all you had to do was have a common ground with them. And so Paul could begin his presentation to the Jew by showing them how the death and, uh, and resurrection of Christ fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And proving this from Scripture was extremely important because even though the Jews believed that the Bible was the Word of God, they still rejected Jesus as the Messiah, right? And they trusted in their own righteousness for salvation. And so the only way to convince them that salvation was by faith alone would be by convincing them that that was taught in God's Word. And so as Christians, this tells us that when we're evangelizing a religious people, a people who already acknowledge the Bible as special revelation from God, our approach should also be to reason with them from the Scriptures by using the Bible to persuade them to repent and to stop trusting in their very own righteousness for salvation. Have them embrace the righteousness of Christ. And there are many people, friends, who live in Christian communities, who go to Christian churches, who, like the Jews, have still not repented of their sins and put their faith fully in Christ as Lord and Savior. Perhaps you might even know someone like this. You see, like Paul, we can appeal to them by reasoning with them from the Scriptures, the Scriptures that they very well claim to believe. But notice something different in verse 22. You see, when Paul evangelized Gentiles who had virtually no knowledge of Scripture, notice how he starts with creation first, and then he moves on towards redemption. Look at verses 22 through 27. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their periods and boundaries and their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him to find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Notice how when Paul evangelizes these Gentiles, he, does, he doesn't begin uh, like he does with the Jews by trying to prove the death and resurrection of Christ, right? He doesn't try to prove how that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. 
No, instead, he begins by appealing to them, not from special revelation, right? Not from the Bible, but rather from God's general revelation in nature. And that is, general revelation is the, the revelation of God in nature that is available to all human beings. And that's why in verse 24, Paul tells these philosophers that God is the Lord of heaven and earth who made the world and everything in it. That's how he evangelizes them. You see, Paul understands that creation is God's general revelation and that there is a true knowledge of God that comes from that general revelation that is available to all mankind. And that knowledge can be gleaned effectively by sinners and unbelievers. And this is what Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tells us. Listen to what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. These are unbelievers. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. You see, Paul's approach with the Gentiles was to use the things of creation in order to argue for the existence of God, especially because these Greek philosophers knew nothing about the Bible. You see, they were only familiar with the writings of their very own poets and philosophers, right? They were intellectuals, and they were extremely proud of their philosophical heritage as Greeks. And verse 18 mentions two particular groups of philosophers who were present when Paul spoke. That was the Epicureans and the Stoics. You see, Epicureans were theists who believed that although God exists, he is not at all concerned with human beings. To them, the meaning of life was pleasure. Whenever you think of Epicureanism, think of pleasure. Their motto was, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. On the other hand, the Stoics were pantheists, right? They believed that everything is God. All of us together with the universe together make up God. And so Stoics believed that the meaning of life was to seek to live in harmony with nature through the use of your own rational powers, right? And therefore, for Stoics, a person shouldn't get too excited by pleasure or be too troubled by pain. He or she should handle all of life stoically, right? Unemotionally. But notice how Paul responds to these philosophers, right? Notice how he shows, them, he shows in his response to them that he has a casual belief and understanding of what they believe, right? He has a casual knowledge of what they believe because in verse 27, Paul, uh, Paul's understanding of the meaning of life was completely different from that of the Stoics and the Epicureans, right? For Paul, the meanings of life was neither to seek pleasure as the Epicureans believed, nor was the, uh, to seek, uh, the meaning of life to seek harmony and be with nature as the Stoics believed. But for Paul, the meaning was life in life was to seek after God, right? The God who created us, that we might be saved as individuals. And notice also that Paul cites the writings of two of their own poets who refer to this Christian God as the unknown God. And so in verse 28, Paul quotes the very words of these poets as an argument for the existence of God. In other words, Paul read their books and he understood that their poets referred to God as the unknown God, saying that, uh, and Paul responded to them by saying that God is not far from each one of us. In him we live, move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. You see, even though these words fundamentally in and of themselves were absolutely pagan, 
they still had some truth in them. And Paul used them to his advantage when he evangelized these people. Why? Because Paul recognized that the creation itself is the very theater of God's truth. And so any truth that these philosophers might have had was ultimately God's truth. It belonged to him. He revealed it to man in creation. And so Paul was confident that he could evangelize these Gentiles effectively, knowing that God had revealed himself in nature to all human beings. And so as Christians, this tells us that when we evangelize, we need to be familiar with our audience to try to understand something about their culture and beliefs to effectively win them for Christ. This means that when we evangelize a person on the street who uh, doesn't have the privilege of reading the Bible or having the privilege of having a formal education, we should be sensitive to that fact. We should try our very best to make the gospel as clear and concise as possible to that person so as not to overwhelm them with any fancy theological concepts and so on. And it also means that when we witness to young children, it's okay to make the Bible transparent for them as well by using good children's books, right, and children's Bibles, felt figures, Christian cartoons, and so on. The point is that as Christians, whenever we evangelize, we should also contextualize without watering down the gospel, right? We need to try to listen and learn as much as we can about the culture, history, and worldview of the people we evangelize. And please take Please take notice of what's happening here with the Apostle Paul in the midst of the Areopagus with all these people. See, Paul is is actually standing in one of the most religiously and philosophically diverse cities in the world at that time. A city with over 30,000 altars to all these different kinds of gods. And here he is, this little man in the midst of all these idols, daring to proclaim the gospel to them, to an audience that was made up of all these different philosophical and intellectual schools of thought. And here's this foreigner, Paul, who has the audacity to lift up his voice and say to all of them, you people have been worshiping God in ignorance. You don't know the one true God, but I do. And now let me tell him, tell you about him. Can you imagine some of the things that people were saying and thinking about the Apostle Paul at this time? I mean, how dare this stranger try to impose his beliefs on us? Who does he think he is? I have the right as a person, right, to believe what I want to believe. My truth is my truth. Why would God reveal himself to this man and not to all of us here today? We can't all be wrong and this little man over here be right. This is similar, right, to what people say about us today as Christians as well, right? They say as Christians, we're a bunch of narrow-minded bigots who have the nerve to believe that we have a monopoly on truth. You have the nerve to come to me and preach a gospel to me that most of the world rejects as folly. They say we're unloving and intolerant when we say that Jesus is the only way for people to be saved. To believe that Christianity is right and every other religion is wrong. Have you ever heard that before? Are you beginning to see how bold and courageous the Apostle Paul was as he tried to reach out 
to sinners with the message of the gospel. And this kind of boldness, friends, only happens when we truly believe in our hearts that sinners can only be saved through faith alone and Christ alone. Because without him, they will ultimately and eternally perish. No, faith in Christ is the only way for a person to be saved. We can proclaim that to the rooftops and not be ashamed about it. It is the truth above every other truth. And if we truly believe this as Christians, we'll definitely familiarize ourselves with the culture of those we evangelize so that once we do, we can boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, which is our third and final point. And Paul shows us exactly how to do this in verses 30 and 31. There he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he's given us assurance by raising him from the dead. You see, here Paul tells these philosophers that in spite of God's revelation and creation to human beings, they continue to be spiritually ignorant on account of their idolatry. And their ignorance is no excuse before God. Because Paul warns them in this very verse that if their ignorance isn't repented of, then they would ultimately face God's eternal judgment. You see, before the death and resurrection of Christ, God graciously overlooked the ignorance of mankind. But now, God commands all sinners to repent. Now, God's Overlooking people's ignorance in this passage doesn't mean that he ignored it or that he indulged them in it. No. It doesn't mean that he, he uh, allowed them to do it and with his approval. It means that he overlooked it in the sense that he long-suffered with them by allowing their lack of understanding to pass by without immediately judging them. John Stott says, God's overlooking doesn't mean that he ignored human rebellion. It means that in his great mercy, he did not visit humanity with the judgment that they deserved. Right? But you see, now with the coming of Christ, these times of ignorance, God says, and lack of understanding about him have completely come to an end. You see, now that people know the truth, they're even more responsible for what they do with it. Because God is now calling all people everywhere to repent and to turn away from their sinful ways and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And notice that Paul's presentation of the gospel to these philosophers consisted of three very important elements. First, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. Second, the resurrection of Jesus. And then third, eternal judgment. And the fact that Paul proclaimed these things to an audience that believed just the opposite of what he was teaching meant that he was being extremely bold in sharing the gospel. Why do I say that? Because each and every one of Paul's gospel points to these people directly contradicted certain elements of Greek philosophy. Notice that in the middle of verse 31, Paul says that God has appointed a man to judge the world in righteousness. You see here, Paul is referring to the exclusivity of of salvation in Christ, 
as the only Savior of mankind who was appointed by God to one day judge the world. And again, this directly contradicted the Greek belief in religious pluralism. You see, the Greeks worshipped many gods and believed that all religions were equally valid, that there was more than one way to God as opposed to only one. And so Paul's teaching that there was one way is very offensive to them. And notice also in verse 31b how Paul boldly proclaimed the resurrection of Christ, saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, this also contradicted the teaching of Greek philosophers who denied a belief in the physical afterlife because many of them believed that the material body itself was evil and that it would ultimately perish after death. And lastly, at the beginning of verse 31, Paul refers to a judgment in the afterlife, saying that God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Here, Paul directly challenges the Stoics, right? Because the Stoics believed that this life was all you had, that there was no uh, next life. Because in their minds, you only live once, so you might as well make the best of it. You see, these truths uh, were very offensive to Paul's audience because verses 32 and 34 tell us that when they heard what Paul said about the resurrection of the dead, they began to ridicule him. And others said, we'd like to hear from you again on this matter. Now, this doesn't mean that as an evangelist, Paul was a failure because some of the people ridiculed him, right? Of course not. See, Paul's experience in Athens teaches us, all of us, that ultimately the success for our evangelism friends should never be based completely on its results, but rather on our faithfulness and boldness as we proclaim it faithfully to others. Because even though Paul witnessed faithfully in Athens, we see that he still had a negative response. He received a mixed response. You see, some people mocked, while others asked to hear more. But fortunately, we are told that a couple people actually believed, including Dionysius and a lady named Damaris. And what this teaches us, friends, is that when we witness to others, we should expect as Christians to face disappointments. You see, there will actually be plenty of times when we feel discouraged, when we feel like giving up because we aren't seeing the numbers, because people aren't responding the way that we would want them to. See, because in our hearts, we truly want people to embrace the message with joy. And so when they reject and ridicule the gospel, we often become completely discouraged and just assume that we did a bad job. But friends, when you feel this way, please remember that ultimately, it's not our evangelistic skills or our incredible speaking ability that saves sinners because only God alone can do that. Yes, we have to do our part as witnesses, but the results, friends, are completely and totally up to God because only he can change a sinner's heart and convince him of their need for salvation. And so be encouraged, friends, because when we evangelize people as Christians, we are certainly not alone because God is working in us and through us to accomplish all of his good purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless us all as we reach out to others with the message of salvation that's so desperately needed in a world full of idols. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you so much uh, for this message, Lord. Thank you for your grace to all of us, Lord. Some of us here, many of us, Lord, have been reached with the gospel message by the evangelism of others. Help us, Lord, to show that same kind of love and compassion and boldness and faithfulness in proclaiming that message to a people in a lost world. Help us to support faithful missionaries, Lord, who go out to proclaim your gospel message worldwide. Father, have mercy on us when we fail to do what we're supposed to do. But we thank you, Lord, that we could be a part of such a great mission on earth. Father, strengthen us and bless us. Be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen.